they can rebuild them. They can make them better than they were. They can make them film geeks because this is the podcast for film geeks by film geeks, the film file. Hello and welcome to the film file. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And uh, thank you as ever for joining us. Andy, how have you been? I'm guessing from when we do this, I'm just explaining, <laughs> we look we look at each other into each other's eyes a lot of the time uh, via uh, our streaming service cameras. And I can see that you are in Banbury. I am. I'm in my, uh, I mean, it's, it, every time I've been here, it's been a different hotel room, but you can't tell because they're all exactly the same. <laughs> it's a premier in, you get what you pay for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> read into that what you want but um yeah i'm back down in banbury uh it's me i've got one more weekend here next week and then uh it's back to sheffield and, Ooh, is uh, that it? and try to plot what my future career path is going to be from there uh, yeah it's, it's finally come to an end three three and a half months of toing and throwing i'm i'm re- i really am feeling quite emotional about the whole idea of leaving banbury it was funny because you felt very emotional about leaving sheffield yeah it's uh i built up such a me it the fact that the manager who I've worked closely with from like me day one here, who's the other manager for cinema, Kieran, he started his career with the light by coming up to Sheffield for two weeks alongside me. So we've been together since his day one. Right. And when we both came down here, we came down here on the day one of them hiring all the staff and inducting them into the building. So all the staff who work here and have been here since the start, I've been alongside them since the start. So I've kind of grown them and molded them into the staff and the team that they are. So I feel like I'm kind of leaving a part of myself behind when I leave here. And I will miss this team immensely. But you'll be know? going back to um, the missing part of you. Yeah, Scott. Yep, and, and reconnecting. <laughs> my, my lovely Scott, who I miss immensely. Yes, um, said, so as he said, he's one of your co-workers and he told me. <laughs> I sent Scott a message the other night because uh, I, I had a first that I think no one is going to beat on this one from like the Sheffield I fixed a projector from my bed. Oh, okay. <laughs> I had a phone call um, when I was sat watching something in my hotel room the other night from over the site. Uh, a film hadn't started properly and they, they couldn't work out how to do it. And I'm still connected to the Wi-Fi because it's literally just, it's, it's like 30 feet across the canal and that's it. So my tablet picks up the Wi-Fi. And as I'm trying to talk him through, you know, you need to click on this, cl- click on this. And from memory, I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, I'm on the Wi-Fi. So I connected to the projector from my tablet and then started going, okay, I can see what's happening now. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. going to do this. Got the film on screen for them. They're just like, yes, didn't even have to be in the building. <laughs> it reminds me of one of those sort of uh, uh, airport films when they're trying to talk down the pilot. <laughs> and he's, uh, and now you could just do it just do it on your laptop. Yeah, I, I was so pleased that I managed to work it out. And then <laughs> it was like, you know, oh, oh no, I've just realised I've started the film without like, there's what's known as uh, cues on it, which are the ones that tell you when the house lights come up, house lights go down, etc. And I'd started off just the film, but I hadn't put a cue in there for when the lights need to come up in the end credits. So I then took note of where that cue should be. And I continued watching me film at the time uh, and then jumped back onto it a minute before the cue needed to come up and waited and went and lights up. There you go. Did everything for them from my bedroom. And that way... <laughs> can inspire you to be able to rule the world just from your laptop. That's it. I can do everything just from my (laughs) laptop or tablet. It's marvellous. Speaking of tablets, oh, Amazon Prime. Do you subscribe to Amazon Prime? Uh, I do, yes. Have you seen the new layout that they've done on uh, Prime? I I haven't, actually. Could it be, in fact, any worse 
than the uh, usual Amazon Prime layout. Well, I didn't think it was possible, but yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Um, it's now huge, big blocks, so you don't get to see as much content in one go, and you have to really, really scroll and sweep and search to find stuff. But not only that, but the app on tablets is shocking, absolutely shocking. It lags when you're trying to select things. Even when you've downloaded content onto the device and play it, it starts juddering every now and then. And I, I started watching a film, and I ended up having to finish watching it on my laptop rather than my tablet because it got halfway through it, and then it literally just freeze screen for five seconds at a time. You can still hear the sound, but five seconds at a time, freezing screen. And for some reason, it auto defaults to have an audio description on, even though when you look in the settings, it's got audio description switched off. You have to switch audio description back on and then off again in order for it to switch it off. They've bodged it completely. It's a shame because I always found that the, the Prime app on the tablet, it, you know, the, the layout wasn't great. But it was responsive and it wasn't resource heavy. I think now that they've made a very resource heavy one that's draining too much memory reserves and that's causing so many issues. And I'm not even using a cheap tablet. You know me, I've got like a, the most recent Galaxy Tab. You know, I, I I don't play with old tech. I always like to have the more, the more recent tech. So it's not that my tablet is out of date. My tablet is brand new and it can't handle a streaming app. You know, I've got a major issues with what they did to comiXology and yeah despite all my bitching and writing stuff on uh, uh twitter nothing ever happened no nope. it was supposed to be upgraded and updated and slightly taking back to how it used to be in fact the, the i think the ceo resigned over it or somebody's resigned recently as a new ceo of comiXology but it's dreadful i was searching yeah. for something yesterday and uh, I'm a big fan of Hellblazer, which is a tie-in to what we're going to be talking about next week. And I was looking for uh, an offshoot issue typed in the name of the of the magazine I was looking for, or the graphic yeah. novel. And it just brought me up novels with the title of Constantine in it. Um, it brought me up a, um, a recipe book as well. And <laughs> no, I just want to be able to go. And then you go, you've got to haul through all of that to then find more comics and then it just doesn't work and they've never got it right and you know what they don't care they never are no. going to get it right i'm not expecting the amazon app to get improved because they've just done the complete overhaul all across all of their apps on tvs etc they don't care as long yeah. as they still get the subscribers and the sad thing is there's enough things that land on amazon that i don't want to not be a subscriber but now i have to deal with a real inept interface a shame. Absolute shame. Um, so, you know, instead of sitting and watching things that are downloaded from Amazon, I took a delve into BritBox this week. Okay. Anything and, new? Um, you are the uh, BritBox champion. Threads landed on there. Oh, I'm in that. I'm in that. Are you in that? Yeah. Oh, I, I need to. I need to revisit it again then because I only. I, mean, I only, it was only a little boy. Well, they used our school. Yeah. Uh, they used our school for some of the. Uh, well, I was at a drama school. Uh, of course, I was, darling. <laughs> of course, I was. <laughs> Oh, the lights, the lights. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, I mean, I've not revisited Threads since way back when it was first on TV in the 80s. And it's one of them that I was reluctant to revisit because I thought maybe it looks dated, that, you know, it was a BBC production. Would it look cheap? And whilst it does still look slightly cheap, it's the documentary kind of approach that it takes that makes it still work and it's still powerful and harrowing. Man, I was depressed by the end of it. And it's even more relevant because we're now in a situation again where we're starting to worry that nuclear, nuclear war might break out because Russia are mental. I, Sorry to I any Russian listeners. It. Oh, no, you're probably not <laughs> listening because you only listen to propaganda. <laughs> I, can't, um, I can't watch it. 
Uh, I watched it when it came out and never never got to the end because I found mm. it really upsetting. And, uh, uh, and, and because I, I was in the scene where everyone is toasted. Yeah. And um, it's just a case of uh, uh, it, it felt too close to home at that particular point while I was yeah. growing up. I mean, it, it does still, I mean, living in Sheffield, recognising even though some of those buildings don't exist anymore, but recognising the locations makes it a hit much yeah. closer to home. It's a powerful piece of filmmaking that I think everyone should check out just to see, you know, <laughs> just to see what we thought about nuclear war and what propaganda we were getting told in the 80s about how to survive it and how much nonsense it actually was. Build yourself a makeshift uh, like defensive thing behind some tables. It's a door, isn't it? You some, put a door against yeah, the wall and you live underneath. Yeah, because that's going to stop radiation. Um, <laughs> it, we genuinely believed all that propaganda of like, you know, the duck and cover kind of things when it was going out. And Thread showcased every, to everyone that the government is just doing that to kind of pacify you because it's not going to do any difference. I think, I think what's interesting, and I'm not going to be uh, um, the old guy shouting at clouds, but being the older guy in this and sort of say remembering the 80s and remember the the genuine fear of uh yeah of uh, a, a nuclear apocalypse because it, it it you know you had ronald reagan and thatcher and whoever the russian counterpart uh brezhnev i think it was at that point yeah all you know flexing their muscles at certain points yeah you know there was a, a real sense of fear and i think you know younger generations hello younger generations i'm not the old man who's shouting at uh, clouds I think it, I think it, it it played into our understanding of the world and what could happen at any particular time. You know what brought us to living not in perpetual fear, but there was it was there at the back of your head. And there were movies like The Day After that came out in the in the states, as well as Threads. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was there were worrying worrying days. And uh, I I hope. To goodness, we never get to that stage again. But you know, we live in a world which is very, very fragile. Yeah. Unlike our egos, when it comes to this show, because in this show this week we are all about singing praises. This week on the show we have a deep dive into the Italian Job and the Italian Job, the classic and the recent remake. Andy and I will both be reviewing the first episode of She-Hulk and the last episode of Better Call Saul. When it comes to movies, Andy's going to be talking about... Uh, three films that you can find on streaming this week, which some of them have been out for a while. The Father of the Bride, The Card Counter, and Memory. And we'll have our usual gossip and nonsense, and of course, our neat things. But before any of that, here is this week's The News. So, this week's news and this week's box office, which... Uh, the fact that the cinemas right now are going through a bit of a drought period, I'm guessing there's not much change in the box office. Well, you'd think with the limited content that's coming out, and we've said it's going to be a quiet period, there wouldn't be many changes at the top five box office. However, in the US this weekend, Dragon Ball Super, Superhero, went straight in at the top spot with 20.1 million taken. Uh, second place is Beast, uh, the Idris Elba versus a lion film that is due out in the UK next week. 11.6 million. Bullet Train is in third place with 8 million. Top Gun still flying in there in fourth place, 5.9 million. And DC League of Super Pets still generating some traffic with 5.8 million. Meanwhile, here in the UK, Nope retained the first place, taking another 1.1 million. Bullet Train stuck into second place. 
836,000 taken this weekend. DC League of Super Pets in third, taking another 811,000. It's now on 10.6 million for the UK. Minions Rise of Gru bags another 753,000, taking its total haul in the UK to 40.7 million. And drifting in fresh into the harbour is Fisherman's Friends one and all, taking 656,000, putting it comfortably into fifth place. So with no new major releases on, well, we talked about Black Adam being the next one. So with nothing new on the horizon, uh, it's going to be anybody's guess what the box office figures are going to be for next week. And on the subject of box office and struggling for cinemas, the big news this week is that Cineworld who is the second largest cinema chain, the parent company of Regal Cinemas and Picture House, is reportedly, at, at the point of us recording, it's only reportedly looking that they're going to file for bankruptcy. It's not being confirmed. I imagine as it rolls into this week, we will get the confirmation on that. Uh, the Wall Street Journal broke this news in recent days. The share price of Cineworld over the past month dropped to around 10 pence per share. And on Friday this week, it dropped halfway through the day to two pence per share as the speculation of them going into administration took place and everyone was trying to get rid of their shares while they still got some value. They, they finished the week on about 4.3 pence per share, which sounds like an ideal opportunity to snap up a bargain, except for the fact that if they do go into administration, whatever you snap up is going to be worth zero because they'll get scrapped. Um, so if you are thinking of uh, cashing in and buying lots of shares in Cineworld, thinking I'm going to own a lot of money when this goes back up, that's not how it works when things go into administration. So please, please, please hold off. Don't risk it at this point in time. So where does that leave us? We had an inkling that their finances were in pretty dire straits during lockdown. And we reported that heavily over a few episodes. But now yeah. it looks like the proverbial has hit the fan. Yeah. Does it look like, because Cineworld Sheffield, for instance, our hometown, is a very profitable cinema. Yeah. Is there a chance of a buyout or is well, this just too early in, in, uh, in the scheme of things to be able to figure that out? It's too early to really figure out what's going to happen. Working within the industry, I do have some insider information, but I can't discuss it. Easier that you don't. Yes. But what I can report on is the reported facts uh, so far. The firm have reportedly hired lawyers Kirkland and Ellis and consultants from restructuring experts Alex Partners to advise on the process. And it's expected that they're going to file the Chapter 11 petition in the US and considering insolvency proceedings in the UK. Uh, we know that before the pandemic, the company was trading at £1.97 per share. During the pandemic, it dropped to about 19 pence per share, but it started to recover when the cinemas reopened. Now, they were looking close to having to declare bankruptcy by the end of lockdown too. But there was some refinancing took place in order to pay off loans because some of the billions of debt that they've accumulated is from the company has been buying up other properties and they made this deal with a Canadian cinema chain right. to buy up and then the lockdowns hit and then Cineworld went, well, we don't want it anymore. And the Canadian cinema chain says, you've already signed the documents. You can't go back on this. We're suing you. And that created even more debt. They were hoping that as like, you know, films like Bond came out and did great. We've had Top Gun Maverick, Jurassic World Dominion. And there's been some, you know, strong contenders, but there's not been enough strong films released in order to cover the ongoing and mounting debts. And so when they refinanced in order to cover their previous debts that they were struggling with, they're now struggling to keep up with the refinance debts. And this has put the company in a real drastic situation. Now, 
regular listeners to the show throughout the past few years will know that occasionally I've spoken about my own personal feelings of Cineworld. And, you know, I, I have no love for that company because of my past experiences with them. But I do not want to see, and we spoke about this when we were talking about the Save Our Cinemas campaign, I do not want to see a major player like Cineworld go out of business. If they are forced to close venues, I don't think they'll close all venues. I think some will get bought out, but there will be some that end up getting sold off as part of the administration process in order to pay off debts. And the sad thing is, this means that people lose their jobs. Now, will those people who lose their jobs be people like Mookie Grodinger, the the boss of the company? Of course not. It will be the lower-end cinema workers and cinema management teams who will lose their jobs. That's people being made unemployed through the financial decisions of people higher than them who will be protected. It's always the same, isn't it? When any when there's any company, unless it's a small uh, SME or a family-owned company, the, the guys at the top, the CEOs, always seem to uh, uh, fail upwards. Yeah, and it's the effect that if Cineworld close will have on the UK cinema industry and indeed the US cinema industry through the regal chain. Yeah, you know, that's going to be pretty, pretty shocking. It's it'd be quite easy to sit here and say, "Ah, oh, I work for a different cinema, and we'll get loads of loads of extra business from this." It's like, no, you're missing the point. A huge chain like Cineworld going under could cripple, cripple the cinema industry. Yeah. So we don't want them to go under. Now, anyone who knows anything about insolvency and um, administration knows that in many cases it's used as a way to write off debts. You cancel one company, one company's debts is completely written off, and then someone buys out the remnants of that company and starts trading under a different name. And in many cases throughout history, the people who've bought it out have been people who were involved in the original company who managed to pass on their shares to someone else before the insolvency took place. I'm not going to say that that's actually taken place, but yeah, that's actually already taken place last year. Um, that some of the owners of Cineworld have transferred their shares to different people, which means that they can then buy back in and relaunch the company under a different trading name. So if your favourite cinema is a Cineworld and you've got your unlimited membership, your unlimited membership will probably get cancelled at some point when the insolvency process goes through. It's no doubt they have to sever everything. They have to close things down. Why the external external assessors come in and value everything up and work out how to pay off as much as possible. And then your site will will close, probably temporarily, unless it's a struggling site, in which case you might lose that site permanently. But the major sites like your Glasgow Renfrew Street, your Dublin, your Leicester Squares, and like we've said, your Sheffield ones, they as buildings and cinemas will reopen and will continue to operate, but it won't be under Cineworld's name if they go through insolvency. I think what's interesting about this is is it, it brings to light how fragile the entertainment industry is. Uh, and, and I mean that not from, from just from a filmmaking point of view, but from an uh, audience's point of view. I think we're living in very dark days. I don't think it's just going to be cinemas that are going to be on the line. Um, yeah. But as this is a cinema show, that's predominantly what we're talking about. But, you know, we have spoken about some of the smaller uh, and even some of the bigger uh, streaming services uh, losing viewerships. Uh, when people have got to pull back as well from from what they're going to be spending yeah. on, we are all kind of living on on this knife edge. Yeah. Um, it, it is it is dark days, and as you said, it, it's not good for everybody else. My my personal thoughts are that I think the chain will be bought out because while as an international brand, as you said, that's where they it sort of run afoul. But I think on individual sites, individual sites are doing very well. 
Yeah. Uh, or if not very well, then are breaking even. Yeah. But there will be a trimming. Uh, and of course, they were, they were in the process of about to open a, a brand new site, ridiculously not 20 miles from, from their own other site, yep. which always felt like a, a, a retrograde move. And this is what part of the, uh, loads of analysts are speculating, and we speculated last year when we last spoke about the financial troubles they were going into, that it's the fact that they were still opening sites or buying up real estate is what everyone is saying is possibly where the problem is, because they've create in order to buy this estate up buy up properties they've had to get out more and more loans and they've just chased debt uh, the company's market value at one time was 4.4 billion before the pandemic it's right. now worth less than 50 million less than 50 million for the whole city world state yeah stark contrast to that amc entertainment the world's largest cinema group currently has a 12.6 billion market value because they've not got the huge debt through buying out and buying out and buying out more and yeah. more properties. And AMC have just recently reported its highest monthly attendance in the US since before the pandemic. So you can't say that this is a failing of the whole market. This is a failing on behalf of Cineworld itself and how they've operated by still trying to make purchases during struggling times. We'll be covering more of this story as as it happens and as we can come back to it. But uh, for now, uh, fingers crossed that this isn't the end of, oh, if not Cineworld, then certainly some of your favourite cinemas. Yeah. Any good news? Well, I don't know whether it's good news, but um, Ezra Miller has released a statement via representative to Variety in which they've revealed they are now seeking treatment for complex mental health issues. I'm not surprised. I think there was pressure on to do this. The timing had to be right. Of course, there are going to be those naysayers going, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, but whoever you work for and if you, you have issues or you uh, do something wrong and they're not going to fire you then you are expected to make an apology. Yeah. Now, it does sound like Miller has very deep-rooted problems and they need to address those. And, and let's hope that's what happens. They are a very talented individual who clearly, clearly needs to get help. And maybe this is the start of that process. So rather than damning Miller, because we only picked up, as we said last week, on, on the gossip and innuendo and reports... Yeah that have not necessarily been verified. Let's hope that Miller can sort their life out. Miller's own statement reads, having recently gone through a time of intense crisis, I now understand that I am suffering complex mental health issues and have begun ongoing treatment. I want to apologize to everyone that I have alarmed and upset with my past behavior. I'm committed to doing the necessary work to get back to a healthy, safe and productive stage in my life. Now, we've said frequently that Miller is very troubled and they just needed to get the help. And for the past two months, Miller's agents and Warners and friends and family have encouraged them to pursue this help. I'm pleased to see that they are finally pursuing the help that they drastically need. This can be seen as it's part of the we need we've got the flash coming out next year and we need Miller to be able to be on the trail and be in a better place ready for that film to come out the flash still is set to come out on june the 23rd next year and early buzz from the test screenings have been very high so warners getting such positive response from the test screenings clearly don't want the film to just be dumped straight onto streaming they still want it to be a success and so it's pleasing that miller has recognized their behavioral issues and is seeking the help all that we can do now is sit and see what happens because there's still the allegations against them 
there's still the charges for felony burglary. You know, there's all of this needs to be processed. And in the coming months, we will get to see what the outcome of all of this is. I, I just want to point out that the, the cynics who've gone on social media to go, yeah, but it's because Warner Brothers have got the Flash coming out. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. It's... <laughs> it's, it, when we talk about the film business, let's remember the, that key point that this is a business. Yeah. And whether we like Miller or not, this is this is an industry that has put in millions and millions of dollars into a, into a movie that, uh, and after the criticism they got over Batgirl, cannot afford to go down this particular road again uh, and scrap another major movie because I don't think they recoup the cost on this one, and it affects every other film that comes after that. So yes, I mean, for those who are going, yeah, but Miller, The Flash, of course, don't be naive. Yeah. This, this is an industry and they have to recoup their star and their costs. I mean, to all the cynics out there who are saying that this is a cynical move by Miller. OK, so say, for example, you did something outside of work and then you get called into a meeting at work and get told, if you don't stop that behaviour outside of work, we're sacking you. You're going to stop that behaviour outside of work and, ta- and, and do whatever you can to st- not lose your job. That's how the world is. And that's all that's happened here. Yeah. Miller is in a situation that their career is pretty much going to be over if they don't curb their actions. And so is final, finally seeking the help that they need. Everyone would do it. Yeah, it, it's it's the same for football players. If you're in the public eye, it's athletes, politicians, uh, teachers, you know, if you, especially teachers, hey, if you do something wrong outside of uh, outside of uh, your work environment, boy, yeah. you can be in you're, huge you're trouble. It's, it's a sacking event. But if you have to make amends, you make amends. So let's not get on our, let's not wear our big boy smug pants and go, yes, but. I do wish good luck to Miller yeah, in we all seeking do. their help. I do hope that they come through at the other side a better person. Yeah. And we'll, ju- we'll report on this as it progresses, basically. So the pre-Miller story was about Army Hammer. Army Hammer, as we know, again, I, and what is it with social media and putting your world out there on social media, especially when you're doing stuff which is considered or maybe considered unsavory? I, I don't get it, I'm, but I'm yeah. a very private person. So as we know, the controversy surrounding Army Hammer uh, led to him being, and I hate the word cancelled, and I'm not going to use the word cancelled because he, he wasn't cancelled. He was... Uh, Sidelined. He was sidelined for apparently, uh, is it sexual sexual deviance that he was talking about? I can't even remember. There was cannibalism involved. Cannibalism in there. Yeah, it's a a variety of allegations. Unsavory. Anyway, so he disappeared. I mean, the last thing that we saw him in was Death on the Nile, and he wasn't prominent on any of the advertising for that. And as Andy mentioned last week, most members of the public don't really know or, or care. But that was the situation with Army Hammer, apparently. And this news, take it as you will, uh, it came from TMZ. So, so take it with uh, a large bag of salt, but it, it might be true. Army Hammer is out of the acting game and is selling, I think, timeshares, <laughs> uh, apparently in the Caribbean. Even though he comes from money, his grandfather is in the oil industry. He wasn't. He's, he doesn't get any of that for whatever reason. I don't know. And needed to support his his family, so he has taken a job selling luxury homes or timeshares or something along those lines. So you know, it's uh, you could talk about how the mighty have fallen, but we all have to put uh, bread on our table. Yeah, even if we've had promising careers, I've met it's really odd. I've met musicians who were at one point, you know, big pop stars at certain periods, and then are doing delivery driving or 
having to do club gigs because they are out of the loop. They can't, they're not selling any records anymore. They're not getting that amount of royalties. Eventually, for, for a lot of people in that industry, you, you can fall. Strangely enough, on the subject of royalties. Did I just create a segue for you and I didn't even realise? You just did, without even realising. It's so natural at this. <laughs> on the on further news of the development of Warner Discovery, they've recently done another content purge from their HBO Max service. A plethora of films and shows, including 200 episodes of Sesame Street, have just been dumped from the service without any pre-warning. And this is all part of the financial tightening of the company. They're avoiding paying the streaming royalty obligations for okay. every time that something's watched. Response from those involved in the production of the films and shows that have been dumped is quite damning for Warner Brothers and Discovery, especially as many of the removed items don't have home media releases and were exclusive to HBO Max, so effectively are lost forever to never be seen. Uh, this has created a huge discussion online of streaming versus physical, which right. has ramped up immensely. You know, people have said for years that the problem with streaming is that you have no control over whether you get to see these things. And it's Baby, you streamer. don't own it. It's as simple as that. It's not yours. Yeah. And now there's a load of content from HBO, which were HBO exclusives, which have gone. And we live in an era where we get HBO exclusives. We get Amazon exclusives. We get Netflix exclusives. And we get, well, we get forced Sky Originals, <laughs> um, which we won't which we won't see those releases appear elsewhere. Now, some of the things that were done from HBO Max did have external promoters and distributors in different locations. So things like uh, American Pickle, which was the Seth Rogen film that HBO Max made, that's now popped up on Amazon because right. they had different different distribution deals for different parts of the world. But there's some parts of the world where you will never see that film again until HBO Max say, we're going to put it back on live. And it's created, you know, while, while on one part we're talking about the, the suffering that Cineworld are doing in the cinema industry, the streaming industry is struggling just as much yeah. with, as we've said, there's too many yeah. streaming things out there and not everyone can get the money. HBO Max are cutting back all these products because they're not getting the subscriber base that they thought they'd get because there's too many streamers out there. This is the start of the fall of the streaming services. Calling it right now, over this next year, we're going to see some streamers go forever. We said it was going to happen. We always saw the writing on the wall. Uh, you oversaturate any market and eventually something has to give. And we're also looking at you, Marvel, at, at this yep. stage. Uh, and we've yep. warned you. We've, we've been very honest about it. But it's it's oversaturation just means that you there's too much product out there and you go people go, ah, too much. They get drenched in it. It's telling that most of the major distributors now are starting to rethink their 30 to 45 day release strategy for cinemas and are starting to look more again to the three month release strategy. Especially when you look at things like Elvis, which is still doing good business, yeah. or Top Gun Maverick, which shows no sign of slowing down. We are absolutely back to a time where the right film has legs at the cinema. And so the distributors are rethinking their automatically onto 45 day windows. And if they're not, they should be. Yeah. Looking ahead to things that are in the pipeline. So oh, Sega, Sega is partnering with PictureStart to develop film adaptations of two more video game titles. And these are two which I would have never thought of. One of them, I actually think this could be a great one. The other one, I'm baffled with. Space Channel 5 and Comic Zone. Are you aware of both of them? I am aware of neither of those, sir. And I don't feel as though I should be caring. Uh, Space Channel 5 is a cult classic dance game from the 90s following a hapless fast food worker who's recruited by a freedom reporter from the future to save the world from aliens using the one thing that unites all people on the planet, 
a love of silly vinyl dancers. I thought it was going to be cat videos, but... I get the game. The game is actually quite fun to play, right. but I don't get it as a film adaptation. Now, one that I do get as a good film adaptation, Comic Zone. I loved this game on the Sega Mega Drive. Yeah, I remember that. You were a comic book creator who gets pulled into his comic book world and has to fight the characters that he's created. And the film is going to follow that jaded comic book creator and a young writer of colour who, when sucked into the final issue of their popular series, have to put aside their differences to stop a dangerous supervillain from sowing complete destruction. I get that completely. I think there's a lot of potential. It's a kind of a free guy element. I, I can see that working, and I hope they do it justice. Let's see. I'm keeping my eye out for Comic Zone. Eh, I'm going to sceptically keep my eye on um, Space Channel 5. We'll wait and see what a trailer looks like for that. But it's because Sega had such success with Sonic that Sega are now tapping into as many of their video game properties to bring to the big screen. And because Sony had uh, such success with their Uncharted film that was based on Mm. the video game of the same name, starred Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg, Uncharted made nearly $402 million worldwide, making it the fifth highest grossing uh, video game after Warcraft, uh, Detective Pikachu, Rampage, and Sonic 2. Yeah. And this is where I get giddy. <laughs> they are bringing to the screen the 2009 open-world action-adventure game. One of my neat things, Days Gone. Yep, yes. Days Gone is getting a big screen treatment from Sony. Yep. It's set in a post-apocalyptic future. Uh, the Pacific Northwest, uh, after a pandemic, has turned people into uh i wouldn't say zombie-like creatures because they're not zombies they're called freakers uh sold over nine million units uh worldwide and in the lead role was a character called deacon saint john who was a biker think of the character out of uh walking dead what's his name the biker guy i know who you mean but um, i I got so disinterested with walking dead as the seasons went on i kind of forgotten every character from that from that series anyway the character was voiced by uh, sam whitwer who voices strange enough darth maul in the clone wars so that's the setup and they are making a big screen version of it and i am so excited i never knew this because they are even into casting yep sam hewan who plays uh, Jamie Fraser in the Star Series Outlander, which I've never seen, but I know it's ridiculously popular, is set to play the role of biker Deacon St. John. I don't know him. I don't know his work. It's going to be written by Sheldon Turner, who brought us up in the air and had a story credit on X-Men First Class. He's also recently written Everest for director Doug Lyman. So far, there's no director that I know of being signed to it, but uh, we'll keep you updated because I am so giddy for this. It was one of my neat things. It was uh, the B-movie version of The Last of Us, and I absolutely adored it. And, and secretly in my head, I've already made the movie. So just come <laughs> to me. I'll, I, I know exactly what I will do with this. So I'm, I'm super giddy about this. Now, we know how I'm super giddy about uh, the Barbie movie next year. I know. I've, I've already uh, popped it as my film of the year in advance. But I'm also giddy at the fact that Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling are now reportedly going to re-team with news that Gosling is in talks to join the Ocean's Eleven prequel for Warner Brothers. Mm, I saw this. Colour me intrigued. I I like Gosling. I love Margot Robbie in in most things that that these guys do. Whether we need an Ocean's prequel, I don't know. But I'm I'm open to a good heist movie. Jay Roach, who's going to direct it, who worked alongside Robbie on Bombshell, has indicated that this is set during the 1960s period of the same universe as Soderbergh's 2001 film and all the films that followed. It will probably feature younger versions of some of the older characters. Uh, the script is being penned by Carrie Solomon, and the story is going to be set in Europe. 
And I'm on board for it. I mean, I didn't think that we needed an Ocean's 8. And I was so reluctant to watch Ocean's 8. Yeah. And then when I watched Ocean's 8, I was like, I want to watch that again. That was it so was much good. fun. So I'm, same as you, as long as it's a good heist movie with that little pizzazz that it has. And the 60s setting should give it that snap and pizzazz, hopefully. Yeah. And it, it, it's quite apt because we're going to be talking about uh, one of the best 60s heist movies in a deep dive later. But yeah, yeah I'm all for this Ocean's prequel. Let's see how this pans out, especially with the names involved. As mentioned last week, we have no idea who's going to be stepping up into the role of James Bond in the ever likely return to the series. But what we do know, or seems to be a fact, is fan favourites of Idris Elba and Henry Cavill are not in running. Why? Because by the time it gets made, and by the time they've done their four years, and yes, we said this, they will be far too old. So the producers yeah. are looking for someone in their 30s. If you think about it, uh, I think he was in his late 30s, Daniel Craig, when he took over the, the mantle of, of Bond and came out of it. And he was just shy of 50 or in fact was 50. So clearly, if you're in your mid 40s, late 40s, then you're not in the running. And it makes perfect sense if you're going to try and get four films out of these actors. Yeah. Which is the same because Henry Cavill would have been the top of my list, but you know who is the top of my list. Well, for me, Aaron, Aaron Taylor-Johnson is just over there. You can't recognise him because he's unrecognisable and everything, but Aaron <laughs> Taylor-Johnson is just there waiting for this this call. Uh, the guy at Paul Dark and being human. Aidan Turner would be a great choice. But, you know, if he can't make it, Aaron Taylor-Johnson is sat just over there. <laughs> I think he's versatile enough, and I think he could really bring something to it. We'll see anyway. It's going to be a while before we get confirmation on casting for Bond, but no doubt we will pick up on it and we will report it as soon as it's breaking. Um, Disney Plus, we know, are working on a National Treasure TV series that doesn't feature Nicolas Cage's Benjamin Franklin Gates character. However, Jerry Bruckheimer has revealed this week that a script for the third film has indeed been written and they're just waiting for Cage himself to approve it. Now, this is Nicolas Cage who, let's be honest, he'll approve anything so <laughs> just to be on screen. So I think it's pretty much a cert that it's going to happen. But Bruckheimer said, let's hope, we're working on the script right now. Hopefully Cage likes it, but it's really good. So I think we'll get it to him shortly. Don't be surprised if in the coming weeks we get a greenlit National Treasure movie to follow on from the two that have come before and to run parallel with the TV series, which is going to focus on a younger cast. Uh, it's going to be called Edge of History. And the TV series sees Justin Bartha and Harvey Keitel reprising their film characters in the series. But it will also star Catherine Zeta-Jones, Lysis Alexis, Zuri Reed, Lyndon Smith, and Antonio Cipriano. Mm. People who like, I mean, it's back to heists again, basically, isn't it? Yeah. yeah we like National it. Treasure is heists all over again. There's a lot of heist news this week. We love a good heist movie. Uh, okay. We love a good uh, gangster movie as well. And Robert De Niro, who has famously made his mark uh, playing mobsters on screen, appears he's ready to dive back into the genre for the aptly named Wise Guys, which was the original title of Goodfellas. Uh, the new movie marks his collaboration with Barry Levinson again, the great Barry Levinson, and is also, again, based on a true story. So Wise Guys focus on Vito Genovese and Frank Costello, two Italian-American crime bosses that ran their respective families in the middle of the 20th century. In 1957, Genovese attempted to assassinate Costello, but failed, although he was wounded and decided to retire, as one can, if at all possible, from the Mafia. Interesting about this is De Niro is playing both roles. Which, for me, kind of maybe smacks of greedy. Also kind of maybe smacks of, of a bit of a gimmick. I'm, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. 
Yeah, I think this is one that we're going to have to see how this uh, plays out because it might work. It might be one of the most inspired decisions ever made or it could just be a confusing bit of a mess of something that could have been a bit more serious. But I'm always interested to see, you know, a reunion between De Niro, Erwin Winkler and Nicholas Pileggi, who are all teaming up for this feature. Yeah, Nicholas Pileggi wrote the original book, Wise Guys, which Scorsese yeah. made uh, into Goodfellas. So let's see. Let's let's keep an eye on this one and see whether he's inspired or whether it's a bit of a mister. Yeah, as you said, fan of everybody involved, fan of Levinson, right back to one of my all-time favourite movies, Diner. Cobra Kai creators John Hurwitz, oh, Hayden yes, Schlossberg good news and Josh Hild are set to produce a spin-off of Ferris Bueller's Day Off at Paramount Pictures. Now, when I read that headline, I was... What? We don't need... They tried Ferris Bueller's a TV series. It was garbage. You don't touch that film. But then I read what the details are. And it's called Sam and Victor's Day Off. And it's going to expand on what actually happened to those valets who took the Ferrari on a joyride. And I am for that. I am completely for that film. Well, it's in good hands, isn't it? And and who would have thought? It, it makes absolutely <laughs> perfect sense. You're right. There was a terrible uh, Ferris Bueller series. There was another series which was kind of inspired. And I can't remember what it's called. It was inspired by Ferris Bueller. And it was a lot fresher and really funny and came out exactly the same time as Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like you say, the safe hands, it's people who know how to tackle old material and do something a bit fresh with it and make it worthwhile. For old material that maybe won't be as fresh, uh, Nicholas Holt, Ving Rhames, Hannah Waddingham and Cecilia Strong have all joined Chris Pratt and Samuel L. Jackson in the upcoming Garfield animated feature uh, for Sony Pictures and Alcon Entertainment. I, I don't get Garfield. I used to when I was a kid, but I've yeah, tried. Me too. Like I've tried revisiting it as an adult, and I just don't get it. I don't get it anymore. Uh, Pratt will be voicing Garfield because Pratt is voicing every cartoon character for the next forty years, apparently. And Jackson is playing a brand new character named Vic, Garfield's father. Specifics of the Justin Mounts cast hasn't been revealed, but notable Garfield supporting characters include his best friend Odie, his owner John and veterinarian Liz. So it's probably likely that's characters that three of these will be playing. The only thing that keeps me interested in this Garfield one is that it's director Mark Dindle, who gave us The Emperor's New Groove, who's behind the scenes on it. And David Reynolds, who co-wrote Emperor's New Groove alongside Dindle, is writing it as well. So fingers crossed, it will manage to make me realise what the fascination is with the Garfield character. Yeah, it's it's a time and a place for Garfield. I must admit, I loved it. I had, I had the collected uh, strips in a book. Uh, I thought they were great, but this is like 30 years ago. Mm. You know, I, I have moved on from that. One thing I'd always want to see, and it is kind of the holy grail of adaptations, is uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Yes, I am well and truly there with you for Calvin. I love happen. the imagination of Calvin and Hobbes. But sadly, yeah, like you say, it won't happen. Uh, One thing that I wish wouldn't happen, but it is happening. Get ready for next October on the 27th, 2023, when we will get treated to another entry in the Saw franchise. I thought that was dead. Sadly, because they're made quite cheap, it doesn't cost a lot to make them. It makes no difference how much money it makes at the box office. It's still profits. And so, Craven Grutert, who gave us the sixth and the final chapter, is returning to direct the new entry. Plot details are under wraps, but no doubt involves torture devices and people having to face life choices because of bad decisions they've made in the past. But there'll be all new twisted traps and a new mystery to solve. I'm so not bothered. I'm so uninterested. Franchise producers Mark Berg and Oren Kuhl say, we've been listening to what the fans have been asking for. and are hard make any more. Pla- no. <laughs> well, yeah, they clearly haven't. A hard at work planning a movie that saw affectionados and horror fans alike will love. 
And part of that is giving the reins to Kevin Grutert, director of Saw 6, which is still one of the fans' favourites. It's not. <laughs> the sixth one is not, not a favourite of the fans. Clearly not listening. Uh, more details will be revealed soon. They're just going to churn them out. So like I say, it's cheap horror for them to make, and it does get some bums on seats because people still go to them. Maybe not a huge amount of figures, but enough to make it profitable. Finally, Netflix has announced November the 4th is the premiere date for, and this is a film I'm looking forward to, Enola Holmes 2, a sequel to their 2020 Enola. film hit. Based on it's your recommendation. Charming. A lot of it hangs on how great Millie Bobby Brown is as yeah. Enola Holmes. She is such a presence on screen, and she's you know, a young actress who is just going to keep shining. She's a modern star. She knows what she's doing as well. She's got producer Very credits savvy. on quite a few things. Very savvy. She's so savvy for the industry. And Henry Cavill will be returning as Sherlock. Louis Partridge as Viscount Tewkesbury. And Helena bon- Bonham Carter will be back as a Diora. I'm well and truly up for it. Uh, there's a huge cast getting added to the list. Uh, Sharon Duncan Brewster, David Tewlis, the great David Tewlis, Gabriel Tierney, Hannah Dodd, Abby Hearn, and Serena Sue Ling Bliss. The new adventure begins after a young girl working in a match factory hires Enola to help locate her missing sister. But before long, Enola finds herself drawn into a high-stakes chase across London, journeying from the city's seedy industrial underbelly to the glitzy galas of high society. Well and truly on board for this. Same director's returning, Harry Bradbeer, and Jack Thorne is adapting the script. Only a couple of months to wait, and no doubt we'll be giddy as little children when we're reviewing this one. Quickly just mentioning uh, Netflix, have you seen that they've dropped two additional episodes to Sandman. Yes, I read that. Is That came as a surprise to pretty much everyone that who thought that, yeah, I've ploughed through all the episodes and then it's like, there's some bonuses with some extra short stories. I think this is a great way to do it. Yeah, we don't know yet if there's going to be a season two. It's not officially announced, but apparently the viewing figures, as is best to reckon with Netflix, but who really ever knows? Uh, we know yeah. that Grey Man's not done as ultimately as well, no. long-standing. But anyway... That's it for the news. But sadly, before we go, and trust me, we hate doing this, um, sad news of another passing. So yeah, this week, German filmmaker turned Hollywood blockbuster director Wolfgang Peterson died at the age of 81. He reportedly passed away peacefully at his Brentwood residence from pancreatic cancer in the arms of his wife of the past 50 years, Maria Antoinette. Now, Das Boot, which was his breakout film, was one of those films that was that Andy hasn't seen very early oh, really? in the podcast. Yes. And it took me all this, all these years to finally realise how brilliant that yeah, film was. Absolutely. But I'd already encountered, without realising at an early age, Wolfgang Peterson's work. You know, t- taking the helm of Never Ending Story. Throughout my life, there's been films like Outbreak and Air Force One. There's a load of films that I never really recognise his name with. The only one of recent history that I recognise his name with straight away, and that's because it was a water setting, was his remake of the Poseidon Adventure called Poseidon, which I had a lot of time for. I thought it was a great disaster movie remake. He was one of those directors that was just incredibly reliable. Uh, And I I mean that in the most positive way. He just brought a a strong hand to telling good narrative. And, you know, not every film he made was great. I've I've got a lot of love for Enemy Mine. Um, Yes. It's not without fault but I've got a lot of love for it. I've, I think his, his strong points were certainly Air Force One and In the Line of Fire, which is, which is a, a brilliant movie and, and, and wonderfully directed. But uh, um, he did films like Shattered, which was quite mm-hmm. an interesting movie. Uh, as you said, never-ending story. Uh, but I think always you can go back and go Das Boot was, uh, was his masterpiece. And uh, um, it got re-released as a TV cut several years ago. 
uh, got remade several years ago as well. Um, but it is it is without a doubt a, just a, a masterpiece of storytelling. Brilliant yeah. piece. Uh, a great director at one point was up for Batman versus Superman yeah. with Jude Law and Colin Farrell in the lead roles, uh, which we sadly never, ever got probably better than the version that we did get but that's another story for another day so um the sad passing of wolfgang peterson passed away at the age of 81 leaving behind a great body of work if you've not seen any of the films that we've mentioned then you really really ought to check them out and that is this week's news you're listening to the film file podcast the film show for film geeks by film geeks and if you're enjoying it and you're not a member and you've not subscribed please please we implore you become part of the film file family because we always say it's all about family all you have to do head over to your favorite podcast platform hit the subscribe button hit the like button and become part of the family but that's not all you can find us on no barriers radio every thursday by going to nobarriersradio.com you can also interact with us on the social media scene kids Yes, you can head over to Twitter, where we're most active, um, at Filmfile UK. You can head over to other social media platforms, where we're least active, uh, but we occasionally have a presence. <laughs> Just search for Filmfile UK. Or you can interact with us directly using good old email. Open up your email client, send us a list of films through that you want us to talk about, or anything that you're trying to track down that you don't know the title of. Send us some clues, see what we can do. That email address is podcast at filmfile.uk. This week, we're going to take you back to swinging 1969 for a British comedy caper film, an absolute classic. It starred Michael Caine, directed by Peter Collinson, written by the great Troy Kennedy Martin. Yep, there can be only one film we're talking about. That is The Italian Job. Five, four, three, two, one, go. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Typical, isn't it? I've been out of jail five minutes and already I'm in a hot car. This is the Four million dollars through a traffic jam. Croker can handle it. Now, it's a very difficult job and the only way to get through it is we all work together as a team. And that means you do everything I say. We need an expert in computers. Wait till you see them Italian birds. Aren't they big? I like them big. <laughs> big! There's even a football match. England versus Italy. Oh, look happy, you stupid bastard. We won, didn't we? The Mafia. They'll be waiting for you. Pretty car. You just lost him his insurance bonus. Now, what would you like? Everything. In this country, they drive on the wrong side of the road. Well, I hope he likes spaghetti. We are about to do a job in Italy. What can you say? about a film that is more than just a film. In fact, it's a, it's a cult. It's a defining symbol of British filmography. It's ranked in every British film top 100. It's become symbolic. It's become overly referenced 
it, be, it has become more than just a film. It has become iconography. So if you've not seen The Italian Job, this is the plot. It centers around Cockney criminal Charlie Crocker, played with much charm. And this is the reason that Kane was an international star by the great Michael Kane, who, after getting recently released from prison, forms a gang for a job of stealing a cachet of gold bullion that is transported through the city of Turin in Italy to steal from an armoured security truck. Alongside Kane, the film's cast also included uh, Robert Powell, John Le Miserie, Sir Noel Coward, and, interestingly enough, Benny Hill. <laughs> the film, upon its release, earned critical acclaim for the performance by Kane and the reflection of the swinging 60s that when Britain was really cool Britannia. If you've not seen The Italian Job, why? It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's always out there. It gets a re-release every couple of years and it is an absolute classic. For a film that is over 50 years old, this is a film that still shines with charm and ingenuity. Andy, after all that, you've got to tell me that you love The Italian Job. I do love The Italian Job. This is the film, and you said, like, if you've not seen it, I what's, what's wrong? But even if you've not seen it, everyone who's not seen this film knows the iconic moments of the film because it's one of those films that's permeated into the, the public conscious in such a way. Everyone knows the closing line of this film. Everyone knows the minis being used in the chase. Everything about it even if you've not seen it. Now, for me, th this is a film that I watched when I was young and then I go back to every few years and revisit. And it, as, as a comedy heist movie, it definitely delivers on the comedy part. Kane is immensely likeable. The quips right from the start are fantastic. Just so cool. He was just so cool. He's playing a career criminal and somewhat a womanizer. And so it could be easy to dislike Charlie as a character, but it's Kane's charm. And the delivery of his witty retorts that more than compensates and makes you care for him and root for them to get through this criminal act that they're trying to do. And, you know, let's be honest, what an ending. And I know we like to avoid spoilers, but come on, this film's been out for multiple decades <laughs> and everyone knows the ending anyway. It's a literal cliffhanger. And it all comes after that stunning car chase through the streets, buildings, tunnels, subways, everything through the Italian setting. It's impossible not to feel the thrills in the last act, but the heist bit, as a heist movie, I feel it's, aside from the getaway section, it's a bit lacking because the setup is more about the recruiting the people and the comedy interactions for that. But the heist itself is very slight, but that doesn't matter because you're having so much fun with all the characters. Benny Hill's character, who's got a thing for, shall we say, larger ladies, is marvellous. <laughs> In, uh, you know, he's supposed to be the computer expert and computers in this were not computers like we think today. It's like big tape reels hooked into great big data banks. And it shows its age through things like that, but it doesn't feel dated because it's embracing the 60s set era in such a way that this is a ta this is one of those portals into the past that still resonates the charm of the location. I have so much fun revisiting this and I still laugh at the same points that I've always laughed at. I still am gripped at the car chase. Everything about it just works. As a heist movie, not great, but as a comedy heist movie, perfection. It is iconic. I mean, there's there's uh, there's no two ways about it and, and hugely influential. And, and, and you've talked about the ending, for instance. There were four written endings and the conceived, the ending that we got is, a, as you said, a literal 
uh, cliffhanger. It's been talked about. It's been analysed to death to how they got away with it, if they could get away with the ending of it. Uh, Kane even revealed uh, an ending that, that kind of wraps it all up, what would happen. It is just it is just a, a, a hugely entertaining film. And as you said, it's also a time capsule for a certain period. Yeah, you could say there are elements of it now that are slightly problematic, but you can say that about anything that is historical and especially <laughs> about film. But what makes this work, what makes it so much fun is that cool Britannianess, And that's why it gets revisited by film fans, by being a place in history, uh, why it's revisited on, on any, every anniversary. It's because it is fundamentally a Britannia style, a cool Britannia style. And it is fun. And it's when the UK in particular was influential across the world with, with, with its style, with its pop culture. And this film just captures that. That's why when it, we, we had the the Cool Britannia revision in the nineties. This film got re-released. This film gets re-released for all of its uh, its anniversaries and still feels a, a, a part of British culture. And a little bit about the little guys doing their best. These aren't, apart from Kane, suave, sophisticated criminals, e.g., Ocean's Eleven. These are British guys who kind of bumble. <laughs> their way through yep. it, even though they are very good at what they do. And of course, the iconic mini car chase is has been reproduced, spoofed. And if there is such a word as it, it has become legendized. It's very much not just a part of film history, it's a part of cultural history. And it's utterly quotable. I mean, this film sits high on regular lists of the best British films of all time, and deservedly so. It holds up so well, and there's no wonder that even in this day and age, so many students still have posters of the film up on their walls because it is so distinctly British and so iconic from start to finish. It's hard to... I mean, like you say, there's some problematic elements that you could look at today and go, oh, I don't know, Camp Tony seems a bit like a... Oh, the womanising. But it's reflective of the era, and it's never done. It's never done in a nasty way, and that's the key thing. It's always done as part of the charm and part of the... Yeah, it's just part of the culture of the time. Every time that I go back to revisit it, I think to myself, oh, it's probably going to be diminished with how many times I'm watching it. But it never does. It never diminishes. I always enjoy it just as much. Kane's finest outing, as far as I'm concerned. And he's been in some great films. But this is the one that is just so iconic for him. I mean, what it did for Kane is it, it set the Michael Kane up for the rest of his life. Of I mean, he's had hundreds upon hundreds of roles. But this... Uh, I would say get Carter. Yeah. Um, this is this is what made Kane the 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 stwala of British uh, British cinema. So with the Italian job, yeah, it seems like a film that deserved to have a sequel or deserved to have a franchise. And it took until two thousand and three before we got another film that is sometimes referred to as Italian Job Two. Sometimes it's just referred to as the Italian Job. That's the Mark Wahlberg starring. Italian job. So this was a, an American remake of the classic, but with an original story. The The plot follows uh, a crew of motley thieves who plan to steal gold from a former associate who double-crossed them. And despite being called the Italian job, the film is set in LA, <laughs> and the plot and the characters <laughs> differ apart from one of the names. And, and that's really only a throwback to uh, the original film. You can enjoy this film, and I don't hate the the 2003 Italian job at all. I think in light of what it is, it it just clearly borrows the name. It starred Mark Wahlberg, Shalise Theron, 
Edward Norton, Seth Green, uh, Jason Statham, Moss Death, uh, Donald Sutherland. And I've got time for this film. I think it's only in the fact that it's called The Italian Job uh, and, and ties into, uh, well, or sadly doesn't tie into the original. It's, it's there by name only. Uh, and there is a sequence with minutes. And that's about yeah. it. That's the only connection between these two films. On the original draft of the script, it was intended to be a direct remake of the original film. But that was turned down by uh, Paramount at the time. So Donner and Wayne Powers redrafted the script, uh, taking two years to redraft it, only watching the original film once to get a feeling of what it was about tonally, not to copy it. And so the screenplay that they delivered for it wasn't a carbon copy. It kept the minis in because F. Gary Gray was sure to keep them in there. He thought that if you're going to do an Italian job, alternate version, you need to have the minis. The Italian aspect is only at the start of the film. And like you say, the main heist is set in L.A., but it's the same kind of themes and it's the same kind of setup of the characters. You know, we've, we've now got um, Jason Statham. Charlie Theron is a safe cracker. Moss Def is the explosives guy and Seth Green is the computer expert. And some of the things of the period don't age as well. You know, Seth Green's character refers to himself as Napster to have a bit of fun with the whole Napster thing. But Napster means nothing to anyone these days. So that's now lost on an audience. But Donald Sutherland in there is John Bridger as Charlie's mentor is fantastic at the start of the film. Edward Norton's not as great, but he only agreed to do this film for contractual reasons. And you can tell at times his performance shows that he's begrudgingly involved in this film. The, like you say, the only mistake that this film made was in calling itself the Italian job. I think that this 2003 version is a better heist movie Ooh, um, than okay. the original Italian job. I think it, it does the heist setup, the planning and the enacting of the heist a lot stronger than the Italian job. But it, it doesn't have the charm of the original version. It's great. It's fun. It, the, the, the car chase is just as absolutely wild, going through tunnels and subways and sewers and buildings. You know, it emulates everything of that last half of the Italian job, but it doesn't have the charm as much. It's it's well worth seeing. I do wholeheartedly recommend that people no, check it no, out. I, I will argue that there's a good rapport between between the cast. The, the, uh, yeah. the cast are incredibly charismatic. It's just a shame that it's called the Italian job, so it immediately draws comparison to that original film and that's the thing that lets it down a sequel was was going to follow called the brazilian job which trust me was more amusing at the time when it was announced <laughs> but it then swiftly went into development hell and the last check-in on it was back in 2010 when mark Wahlberg still said oh it's happening but everyone else was saying no it's gone it's dead i don't think we'll see a sequel to it i think at some point we'll see another remake or alternate version of the Italian job. Same way that we're seeing, like we said in the news, more Oceans films. Because heist movies can be redone and reevaluated from different points of views. Whether we need to use minis again, I think not. But you could easily remake the Italian job for another audience with another set of iconic actors drawn together to play against and still deliver the same kind of fun thrills. Well, it was rumoured back in February of 2021 that Paramount Plus were developing a sequel TV series, and that was set to revolve around Charlie Croker's grandchildren who inherit his old safety deposit box and a quest to find the Italian bullion that we saw hanging over the edge of a cliff at the end of the movie. It was announced that Matt Wheeler would write and executive produce the script with uh, Donald DeLine producing, uh, who was previously involved in the 2003 remake. I've not heard anything more about it other than that. Uh, whether it's still on the cards, who knows? But I could see it as a TV series, as a, as a 
short form TV series, 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I think the only other way that we'll see it is if we see um, some kind of new, uh, a new remake. But as we said, there is a legacy to this film, even so much so that in the 2010 Summer Olympics, which were held in London, a replica of the bus was made and was exhibited balanced on the edge of a roof in uh, um, the Delarwar Pavilion on Brexel on Sea. Uh, the dialogue constantly keeps cropping up again, cropped up in the ending of the end ceremony of the 2012 Summer Olympics. It's a film that just kind of is very British in a very cool way. And trust me, if you've not seen it, do yourself a favour. Spend the next two hours enjoying the Italian job once you finish listening to this podcast. Andy, where can we find the Italian job? Both the original version and the 2003 version are currently on Sky Movies. There you go. What what more do you need? You can do a double bill, which is exactly what I did the other day. (laughs) And we'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for a whole bunch of reviews. So as you know, it's quiet out there in cinema land and it's a little bit quiet, I think, in streaming land. But no matter what, Andy's doing the Lord's work and managing to find something to review. Andy, what have you got first for us? I mean, you know, there are films on at the cinema, but they're not films that I've been drawn to because there's Orphan First. Fisherman Friends 2. And Fisherman's Friends 2. They're not films that I'm drawn to. I might get around to watching them sometime down the line. But until then, there's still a wealth of stuff out there on streaming that you might have missed or it's just come out. So we'll start with Father of the Bride, the third adaptation of this story from 1949. Yeah, originally was Spencer Tracy. Yep. Then we had Steve Martin. Who have we got in the lead now? We've now got Andy Garcia as Billy Herrera and with Gloria Estefan as his wife, Ingrid. Sophie! She's not here yet. Fathers play a big role in their daughter's life. It's a special bond that only they share. Hello! And even when she's all grown up, she's still daddy's little girl. I have something to say. I'm engaged! Oh. And I propose. Wow. You propose? You propose? Yes. You propose to him. Mm-hmm. He didn't propose to you. Mm-hmm. Can you do that? Does anyone do that? We're supposed to play the perfect family until Sophie gets married. What we can say. Sorry to spoil your happiness, but we're getting a divorce, Mazel Tov. Mommy, Papi, this is Aaron Castillo. We don't want some big, fancy wedding, and we want to pay for it. Two lawyers are out of college, working for a nonprofit, are going to pay for the wedding. Billy! I'm the father of the bride, and I will be paying for the wedding, and I'm going to be walking my daughter down the aisle. The wedding planner's here in 20 minutes. Wedding planner? Love Amelia! So what are we thinking about theme? Theme? We don't want a Catholic wedding. What are you talking about? Who's going to officiate then? My guide, Monica, from the Zen Center, New York. So a yoga class instead of a wedding. Hey, caramba. This is my father. For the wedding. Oh, my God. How rich is this guy? Gonna have some champagne and come aboard! What is he, a Bond villain? So the third filmed version of the novel from 1949, this time taking a Latinx approach as renowned architect Billy Herrera, played by Andy Garcia, and his wife Ingrid, played by Gloria Estefan, are struggling in their marriage. Billy's workaholic nature leaves him very little time for his family. And with divorce looming, they're about to break the news of their plans to separate to the family during a visit from their daughters. But one daughter, Sophia, played by Adria Arjona, announces plans to marry fellow lawyer Aidan, played by Diego Benita. Deciding to wait until after the big day to announce their separation, Billy and Ingrid set about helping plan 
and interfere in the upcoming wedding, with Billy overcompensating at times as he starts to regret his past focus on his work, smartly avoiding being a direct copy of previous adaptations. Whilst there are some charmingly comic moments within, this version instead chooses to focus on the family drama aspect more, and the juxtaposition of one love breaking while another one is growing. The cast and the Latinx focus, itself amusingly commented on by Garcia's character, give the tale a presence of its own as the story plays out. And it's very easy to be caught up in the tale, even though we have effectively seen it played out before. Just under two hours, it does feel a little overlong, much like the Steve Martin version did, but it doesn't quite outstay its welcome. And the final act plays well enough to hit the emotional core of the tale. Father of the Bride is a worthy adaptation, which does its own thing whilst retaining the core essence of the story it adapts from. Okay. And it's not a Sky original, but you can find that on Sky. And next, dare I ask? Again, we're sticking with Sky. And we've got The Card Counter, which is directed and written by Paul Schrader and follows William Tell, played by Oscar Isaac. This has been on my cards, pun intended, for some time. (laughs) I noticed this, um, I think, a couple of years ago. I got a release last year in the States and I've been looking forward because I, I like Paul Schrader's work. I don't think he's always always hits the mark as a, as a director. I prefer him as a scriptwriter, but I am intrigued to, to see this. I've watched you play. You count cards, right? I'm not that smart. But you win. Do you remember Major John Gordo? He made you the fall guy. We have to set things straight. I want to show you something. Pocket queens, 10 of spades, 10 of diamonds. How'd you do that? Let's play poker. It's all about waiting hand after hand. Then something happens. You remember me? We are each responsible for our own actions. All in. The Card Counter. Directed and written by Paul Schrader, The Card Counter follows William Tell, played by Oscar Isaac, a gambler who taught himself how to count cards during a stint in military prison. His strategy to avoid detection is to bet small and win modestly, walking away and not getting greedy. He refuses the chance to be given some financial backing for a card tournament, but after a chance encounter with a face from his past and a young man named Kirk, played by Ty Sheridan, he begins having dark nightmares of his time in service in a prison torture camp. He takes Kirk under his wing, wanting to help the youngster avoid a dark life path, and then agrees to enter the World Series of Poker with plans to use the winnings to set Kirk off in a good path. As a Schrader-written character study, the screenplay is a dark and brooding look into morality and the choices we make. Schrader not only presents it well on the screen with effective use of the seedy gambling environments, even the luxury casinos are given a subdued look, and the fish-eyes lens distorts vision of the torture prison flashbacks. But in casting Oscar Isaac in the lead, he's made the perfect choice. He plays a tortured soul with every look, every line and every movement drawing the audience into his darkness and carrying us along with him as he hopes to find salvation from his past by preventing Kirk from falling. The card counter won't be to everyone's taste. As a character study, it doesn't pad out with unnecessary action beats or comedy, but for those who love Schrader's work, either as a writer or a director, it's definitely another strong entry on his CV. And finally, what have you got? Liam Neeson playing a hitman who's fighting the onset of Alzheimer's in an unremarkable entry into his uh, era of rough-edged characters with skills. And that film is on Amazon called Memory. I'm the bad man. have been for a long time. Your shooter's losing his mind. They have to be punished. I want justice. He's taking out the traffickers that we couldn't. You said he wasn't a problem. I'm 
No, you're not well. We all have to die. What's important is what you do before you go. Memory. Directed by Martin Campbell, the film is a remake of a Belgian film called The Alzheimer Case, which sees Neeson as Alex Lewis, who's assigned to take out some child traffickers. But when one target ends up being one of the young girls to remove all witnesses, he refuses his rule of no children, showing that even killers have a moral compass of sorts, and it results in him being targeted by those who hired him. At the same time, an FBI agent named Vincent, played by Guy Pearce, is investigating the trafficking ring, but getting nowhere in his investigations. As Alex and Vincent's paths draw together, the pair look set to clash, but could also be each other's key piece in finding what they need. Neeson is on autopilot here, doing exactly what we've seen of him so many times before, and the potential of his slow memory loss is sorely underplayed, only becoming a plot point when it conveniently feels like it needs to add a touch of tension to something. Pierce is sorely underused, and it feels like his character would have made for a far more interesting main character to follow throughout. Whilst Campbell just about delivers on presentation, it's all very standard and formulaic, and not a scratch on his other output, making the whole thing feel just so bland and forgettable, which for a film called Memory is pretty apt. All involved have been in much better similar films, and whilst this film tries to tackle the weighty issues of child abuse and sex trafficking, it mishandles the whole affair and ends up feeling somewhat tasteless in the manner it approaches things. Okay, so that's streaming out of the way. I don't think, uh, I think, as you said, I think memory sounds utterly forgettable, as is a lot of Liam Neeson's recent output. Which is a shame. It is a shame. Uh, He must have a huge tax bill or it costs a fortune to heat his swimming pool. Probably (laughs) the same swimming pool that Nicolas Cage has got. Anyway, moving on, let's look at this week's release, uh, first episode of the latest Marvel series, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. When you're a Hulk, trouble's gonna find you. This Thursday, weird, unexpected trouble. Let's do this. She-Hulk. Hulk Jen is a total snack. Hulk. Yes! Abomination. Namaste. Walk. The Sorcerer Supreme. And Madison. Two ends, one Y. But it's not where you think. Just remember whose show this actually is. She-Hulk is streaming on Disney Plus this Thursday. So this is a lawyer show, as we are told in the very, very first opening minutes. Jennifer Walters is involved in a car accident and blood from her cousin, who turns out to be Bruce Banner, played again by Mark Ruffalo, enters into a bloodstream and she develops the ability to transform into a Hulk. But she's got some differences. Uh, She keeps her intelligence. She can change at will, but she's more interested in her uh, lawyer work than trying to, at this stage, keep turning into her huge green alter ego. It stars the immensely charming Titania Maslany, who was absolutely brilliant in Orphan Black. A stunning performance, and, and again turns out to be absolutely brilliant in this. I had a lot of fun with this one. Uh, it felt like a first episode origin story. Let's get everything in very, very quickly so we can get on with the storytelling. Uh, and if anything, that was my only slight criticism of it. And you know what? People are going to be going, oh, these guys, they're, they're, they're talking about Marvel. Of course, they're going to be liking. But you know what? So far, Marvel in their TV side have not let me down. Um, yeah. I've been more critical of the films than I have of the TV series. And this was this was as charming as anything out there. A lot of fun. Worked with the John Byrne and Dan Slott uh, element of, of breaking the fourth wall as well. 
had a lot of fun with it. Andy, did you? Yeah, um, you say that one of like it, you know, it suffers from the origin story things. But what I loved is that the episode actually acknowledged that, like, oh god, it's another uh, um, origin story because it starts off with her as a lawyer. And then she turns to the camera and says, I suppose we need to get this out the way. Yeah. And tells the backstory. So it acknowledges that it's got to do the origin story. And so plays it in a fun way. She's mag- magnificent in the role. She's everything that I've always imagined the character to be yeah, represented you, in a live action version. You've just said it, actually. I, n- I never even realised. But yeah, she just encapsulates, the, the, the especially the John Byrne and Dan Slott period. Yeah. She is, for all intent and purposes, the ideal She-Hulk. She's dripping with charisma. Uh, she's got great comic timing. And that comes through as mm. Jessica and, and She-Hulk. Yeah, I, I was belly laughing at multiple times through this. And I've seen criticisms online saying that it's too jokey. It's like, you clearly never read the She-Hulk comics yeah. if you yeah. think that it's too jo- jokey. Because the She-Hulk comics have always been jokey. I've seen people criticise that they're ripping off Deadpool with their fourth wall breaking. Excuse me. She-Hulk was fourth wall breaking way back in the first. 80s. Did it first, kids. Yeah. So Deadpool ripped off She-Hulk. This captures everything that I've loved about the character from the comics in such a great way. And whilst the origin story was very condensed and it seemed a bit rapid, you know what? I'm fine with that because I want to get to the courtroom drama. Yeah. I want that lawyer show because that's what I love about the comics is that it's a lawyer show comic more than an action one. Yes, the earlier comics were more action-packed and more up against another abomination, up against another big baddie. But the character evolved to be something more than just like female version of the Hulk. She evolved to be the lawyer over the past two decades. And that's what this is going to be. I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out. And we had a mid-credit sting. We had a mid-credit sting on the very first episode. <laughs> yeah, and what a controversial one it was. So apparently Captain America does. <laughs> I-, I love the fact that they cut off the word just after the... F- <laughs> brilliant timing on it and it just left me rupturing with laughter as the end credits rolled knowing that i need to tune in again next week i really really enjoyed it and yes like you say you know some of our listeners go oh these guys are marvel shows blah, 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 blah. but they're tapping into everything that we love yeah. about comics they're tapping into maybe the change in the stories but they're tapping into the essence of what we've always loved so why shouldn't we embrace them why shouldn't we love them Personally, Falcon and the Winter Soldier didn't quite hit the mark yep, for me. No, I agree. It felt a bit too formulaic. So not all of the Marvel shows have been perfect. But when they've been playing with new characters in the Marvel universe, like with Ms. Marvel and like with this, and getting a bit more creative and fun, they're embracing everything about the comics so perfectly that why shouldn't I enjoy them? I mean, this played into, and, and this is what they were doing at the time, kind of the Ali McBeal sort of feel for it. Yes. And that's where they went with the comics. Initially, John Byrne did it, totally revolutionising the character from just being an, another kind of a female take on the Hulk and, and making making the character into something truly, truly uh, unique. Um, as we said, Dan Slott picked up on that one. This feels like the first Marvel show, probably other so than uh, um, the Loki and Miss Marvel, that, that needs repeat multiple seasons. You know, that can play and play over, over. It doesn't feel as though it has to be done in 10 episodes and that we can come back to and come back to because mm. it's it's that perfect TV um, law show with a She-Hulk in it. So I'm very intrigued. I'm really looking forward, of course, that, that Daredevil uh, makes his uh, entry into the MCU other than just being Matt Murdock. So I'm um, having a lot of fun with it. I had a, 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 and again... Marvel just know how to cast. Yeah, looks like it's going to be a great show. Let's see if it does carry on through the weeks. And we'll report back every few weeks 
whenever there's something that really captures us, we'll report back rather than doing it week on yeah, week. Yeah. I think it's better if we leave a couple of episodes so we can still reflect on it as the story starts to progress. Can I just point something out while we, we're, we're talking of, uh, of this? Yes. It was, it's the, the critique on the uh, reviews, which had uh, been very positive from, from, uh, from critics, being review bombed mm-hmm. by predominantly 30-year-old males whose fragile masculinity seems to be threatened by a strong female character and clearly haven't watched the show because they're still saying she's shown to be stronger and better than the Hulk. It's like, well, you didn't watch it. You just watched the trailer because uh, it's proven that he's still stronger than her. It's just that she can control her emotions better because, and there's that great line where she talks about how, as a female, she has to control her rage through her everyday life. When she gets catcalled, when she gets mansplained things to, you know, this is things that women have to deal with. And anyone who feels threatened by that in a TV show, really, and this is the slogan from our T-shirt again, grow up and get out of your mother's basement. It's, it really saddens me, Andy. It really does. It, and especially really with does. fandom. You know, fandom for me was always about being inclusive, belonging to a community of people who saw the world a little bit different. And I've just been telling telling my, my kid about growing up and being the only kid in my my class who was into comics and then once mm-hmm. i changed schools i found another kid and it, you could talk about the fantastic four you could talk about the x-men uh, and a lot of my friendships are based on on being fans of either music or, or, or fans of being being the comics my my best friends are all, all comics fans and i always thought that, that the community of fandom whether that be be comics whether it be genre sci-fi you know star trek especially star trek was all about inclusive all about seeing the world slightly different and it just makes me sad and it makes me angry at the same time that got 30 year old guy feeling the need to uh, to react in in this way you know the same when we got a female doctor the, the she-hulk's been out for 40 odd years guys yeah. 40 odd yeah. years uh it's not a cheap cash in it's been out there for a long time as has miss marvel as as uh, uh, the wasp all the, the black widow all these characters have been there longer than you guys have. Um, if you want to argue it with me, get in touch. I really want to know why you feel threatened by strong female characters, because I honestly just don't get it. Really don't get yeah. it. And if, if somebody wants to explain it to me without resorting to mudslinging, I, I'm, I'm interested to know your point of view, because honestly, I just don't get it. I've seen a few criticisms from like that same lot of people who were review bombing who were saying like her attitude towards the Hulk and like she she's arguing with him and she's being flipping to him and he's basically a war hero it's like he's also her cousin and the relationship between them felt naturally like that family bickering yeah, great rapport approach with her. it was natural if there wasn't that there it would have felt a bit stilted it felt like a natural family rapport you don't care if your family whether the other person's like rescued people or done anything you're just caught up in the moment of the discussions, and that's what was represented. So that's She-Hulk, and we're going to stay on TV because sadly, and I mean sadly in the way that it, that it's over, rather than sadly there being a poor last episode. And it is hard to create a last episode for a series that you'd love, but I think the last episode of Better Call Saul, aptly titled "The Soul Gone," pulls it together and pays off not just the seasons of Better Call Saul, but 14 years worth of, of storytelling in the, what should we call the Breaking Bad universe. It was fulfilling. It was thought-provoking. It had an emotional sucker punch. And it was the perfect ending to what has been a, a, a great series. 
for a series that I've said before, yeah. I didn't think that we we ever needed. Yeah, it's interesting because like Breaking Bad up until this point had my favourite season like series finale of all time. It was a great season finale. It showed exactly how you should end a show like that. I feel that El Camino wasn't needed. Yeah, but I still liked it. Yeah, I think I think that's somewhat diminished Breaking Bad's ending. But with Saul, like you say, it's just a perfect ending, and I think it's a better ending than Breaking Bad. I think overall it's been a better series than Breaking Bad, whilst also serving as a perfect companion piece to the two. That I now want to go back and rewatch Breaking Bad as a result of how much I've loved Better Call Saul. All the elements that we were introduced to in the first series of Better Call Saul, the flash-forward black-and-white segments, all came together in this final season. All the elements that were tying into characters for Breaking Bad all came together in this final season. This final season has been such a beautiful ride, and a ride of emotion, a ride of great storytelling, and a ride of character development that has just been absolutely nailed to perfection. That final episode had me gripped from start to finish and I I didn't want it to end. But at the same time, I was so glad it ended because it ended in such a perfectly poignant way that I don't want to see any continuation of any of this storyline ever again. I think it's a perfect completion for the whole Breaking Bad timeline. It's uh, it's you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, it took a universe that we knew what one of the outcomes was going to be and it allowed it to do absolutely um absolutely something different and um quick warning there might be a couple of spoilers on this one but we know that uh if you've seen the previous episode genie's on the run from the cops after uh guest star carol burnett's marion uh identified him and what it did is it, it almost did this in a um a, a christmas carol kind of way in which we got uh saul jimmy gene being visited by by three ghosts in the forms of, of flashbacks and we got to see three episodes or, or three episodes within his life that gave him a sense of who he was uh, and who, what what that character meant and the people around him so we got an appearance by brian cranston we got an appearance by his brother chuck and they all felt to me a little bit like like being visited by the ghosts uh, of christmas past uh, that they're going to somehow understand who this character is and we got the confession and we saw him go from gene back to being saul to being jimmy again uh, and with a beautiful beautiful ending that almost took us back to where we first met uh, uh jimmy and kim it, it was marvelous I, I found myself not quite tearing up but the, sh- the sharing the cigarette moments yeah. as the pure you know that was the bookend of the whole series it was like the, the, everything had come full circle again. And that was beautiful bit of like just simple framing. Yeah. And we didn't get an easy ending. We didn't see a, a, them being absolved of their of their crimes, including no. Kim, who, you know, uh, she was the love of his life. She's probably still going to get prosecuted. Yeah. She's going yeah. to get taken to the cleaners. But we saw them reach a stage where they both came to terms with, with who they are and what yeah. they mean to each other. And I thought, I thought it was a beautiful. It was it was literate. In a kind of, as I said, Dickensian way, uh, it contextualised what the what the past means to the present, and also looking forward to the future with some amount of optimism. Uh, and it and it made us realise that uh, who those characters were and what they meant to each other. Absolutely perfect ending. I'm so sad to see it go, but I'm so happy that it ended in in such a fantastic way. Yeah, same here. 
So that's this week. It's quiet out there in uh, entertainment land. What are we getting after this, Andy? Uh, so cinemas this weekend see Mr. Malcolm's List, but there's also um, Beast, which is the Idris Elba starring Ooh, yeah, film, the which for that. kind of intrigues me. It yeah. looks quite good. Might be okay. Now TV and Sky. I loved it when I reviewed it. Sing 2 is on there this week. Over on Amazon, Licorice Pizza lands this week. And there's also a film called Samar- Samaritan. 25 years ago, the world's greatest hero vanished. But with crime on the rise in his city, 13-year-old Sam Cleary suspects that his mysterious and reclusive neighbour, Mr. Smith, played by Sylvester Stallone, might be that legend hiding in plain sight. I'm kind of intrigued on this one. That's about it on streaming. But um, Samaritan, yeah, that intrigues me as well. I've already seen Licorice Pizza and Sing 2. So I need to find other things to review for next week. Uh, Licorice Pizza for me. And that, guys, is it for this week. And we'll be back next week with another film file just for you. Yeah, just for you. But before we go, and of course, you know, if you're a regular listener, we do this every week. Our neat things, things that we've enjoyed, things that we want to tell you about, whether it's a movie, whether it's a meal, whatever it is. As long as we think it's neat, we think you need to know about it. Andy, what's your neat thing? For this week now my neat thing this week and i've mentioned audiobooks a few times but i'm just going to mention audible as a whole this week because i could have chosen heat 2 which i've just picked up on audible but i've not started listening to it yet but i've heard that the audible version of it is read in a rather distracting manner i'll refo- report that on that in future weeks but whilst browsing through audible i realized something that i hadn't twigged on is that as well as having the selection of podcasts on there they now are also doing limited access to a selection of full books as part of the subscription which you don't have to use credits for so at the moment if you want to find out what the fuss of satanic verses is well it's there for free for subscribers until early september for me there's two david mitchell books on there and i love listening to david mitchell rant about modern technology and the world around us as well as ftps as he calls them flat top pubs and the culture that grows in them not around them grows in them and i didn't realize that it, it is literally for a short period of time you have a chance to just delve into another audiobook for no extra charge as part of the subscription this is marvelous audible is such a good value subscription anyway it is we've talked about it many times i absolutely love it you pay less than a tenner per month to get one free credit and that credit can be used for audible books that normally cost like 20 30 pounds if you want so you get your money's worth there but then you get the wealth of all their free podcasts and explorations into history and then you get free books each month from a wealth of libraries yes some of them don't interest me but to have two from david mitchell there for me to like plow through over this next week i'm more than up for it so if you're not on audible they always do great little new entry to subscribers usually you get three months for like three pound or something like that well worth checking out whilst it audio books will never for me replace the feeling of having a physical book in my hand and browsing through the pages they're so handy for when you're on the move and because i'm commuting so much audible keeps me sane on my train journeys so my neat thing for this week is a youtube uh, channel presented by Justin Hawkins. Now, Justin Hawkins, as anybody in the music industry will know, is the rather flamboyant uh, lead singer of a band called The Darkness. And I started watching this uh, on the off chance because it was uh, uh, Justin Hawkins was talking about uh, a band that I particularly liked, and I have become addicted to this. So the channel is called Justin Hawkins Rides Again. And it basically, he, the lead singer, uh, sits with an acoustic guitar, at the microphone 
uh, and discusses the traits of the music industry, um, pitfalls of performances. He dissects other, other other songs and acts from things like their influences to even songs that are clearly blatantly stolen. He's got an encyclopedic uh, knowledge of, of rock and pop music and, and the industry itself. And he's not afraid of saying this, but he doesn't say it with any malice. He says it with something of a, a bit of a musical expert. He really is, has, a, has an amazing knowledge uh, of musicianship. And he will talk about this and he will talk about, about singers and he'll talk about songs and he'll talk about performances. But it, uh, there's no sort of vitriol in what he does. It's, it's a very honest and it's very amusing uh, and well-constructed and, and a certain appreciation for it. He doesn't slate anybody, even if it's somebody he doesn't like or a song that he doesn't like. He, he, he's quite, uh, even though he, he has kind of clickbait titles to it, he, he never really goes to town. This is not somebody slate in the music industry. This is someone with a, with a wry sense of humour uh, and a self-deprecation talking about the music industry. It's a lot of fun. If you're a music fan like I am, check out Justin Hawkins Rides Again on YouTube. It's a lot of fun. Ten minutes of fun you can just drop in and drop out of. And that is my neat thing for this week. And that means that we're done. Uh, we're done for another week. Andy, uh, you're down in Banbury. When are you back? Uh, well, I'm popping back to Sheffield over the next few days, and then I've got another five days here, and then I'm back from the 30th full-time in Sheffield. So, uh, Film File fans in Banbury, this is your last chance to go and say uh, fond farewell to Andy Meeky. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another show, more deep dives, more stuff and nonsense, but before you go, it's a very difficult job, and the only way to get through it is we all work together as a team, and that means you do everything I say. Coming up right now, it's yes. No, it's not yes. It's yes. <laughs> it's yes. That's seven, and that 70s. Owner of, a, owner, <laughs> owner of a broken heart. Hit it, Smiley. Let's rock. <laughs> Let's rock. Here is this week's The News. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, in, in breaking news, the egg has... <laughs> the egg, egg has dragged back. <laughs> If I, if I got told tomorrow that I have to stop doing this podcast, otherwise I lose my job. Oh, you know what? I'm going to have to put on a false accent and pretend to be someone else on this podcast <laughs> yeah. with Lee. You're going to have to this, go back to being Heinrich again. This is this is a, this is Lee Ford and um, Heinrich Meekin. <laughs> oh no, not Meekin. That's too close. <laughs> but no, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Never ever eat eggs again while we're I really, and yeah, the same as you, I'm, I'm disappointed that the fan community seems to be separating that you've got this toxic incel kind of um, aspect of it who feel threatened by the females. And I can only put it down to, and like I've hinted at, these people have never read comics, but they pretend they have. Yeah. This is the dude bros who've latched onto comics now that co comics are in the cinematic framework. So for the past two decades, since Sam Raimi's Spider-Man or before that X-Men and Blade, got people going comic books comic books and people are wikipediaing about comic book characters to think that makes them an expert rather than actually being comic book fans you can usually pull them up on things because they'll start saying things and you go well that happened in this issue and they just go don't talk nonsense it's like you clearly don't read comics <laughs> and that's the problem is that the comic book fandom has been has been jumped on by people who don't read the comics I've seen it myself with this one particular person on Twitter 
who has been negative about Ms. Marvel on the run-up to that, how the comic was fa- had failed. It's like, well, the comic was still running. Uh, no one wants this, no one wants this. And then he finally watched it and went, oh, actually, it was quite good. It's like, oh, you mean you're being negative for no reason at all, mate? Yeah. And he's done exactly the same for She-Hulk. And it's because he feels threatened by strong female characters. He doesn't want to admit to it, but that's basically what it is. And he's never read the source materials. Because yeah. with the Ms. Marvel one, he then finally said, oh, I've started reading Ms. Marvel comic book. It's actually really good. It's like, oh, so you were saying it was rubbish six months ago, and that's why they should never make it into a TV series. This fandom is the toxic element. Thankfully, they're only a minority, but they're a huge voice. And this is the problem that we've said with the internet is that it makes a minority seem bigger than what it is because they can review bomb things by creating multiple accounts and leaving negative reviews constantly from the like one person. Whether it's I feel this your, will be cut down for the radio version. <laughs> yeah. Whether it's your Snyder cult or whether it's your Marvel fanboys out there, they do not represent the rest of us. The rest of us are embracing of anything comic book related. Like we've said before, me and Lee, we're living in a world that we never dreamed of when we were growing up. Yeah. That all of the things that we were reading in the comics as kids and we were shunned for by society for being into these things, they're now in the public consciousness and we can embrace it. Why can't we just all embrace it together? Why can't we all just get along? There's there's the rant for this week. Yeah. That might actually end up getting caught and put as a, a stinger at the end <laughs> this week. <laughs> Rather okay. than break up the show with Andy going on a soapbox rant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just stop the show, didn't we, there? I just got a minute. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, I, I'm completely with you. It's just, I find it abhorrent. I, I don't, I don't get it. I, don't, I, I really sit and tell me. I, I really want to know what the argument is. Um, I just, I just don't get it. I mean, there was one I saw that was, uh, oh, they've made, um, made the Hulk into, it made the Hulk trans. And I'm going, you've, you've not, and this was before the show came out. So, you know, it was, uh, uh anyway. In, incels. Yeah. Don't get it. 